Hello you filthy animals and welcome to another episode of the Old Metal Bar Steward brought to you by 25 Years Later Media and the Ruminations Radio Network. I am your host, the Old Metal Bar Steward himself, Neil Gray. And before we get into more tales from my sordid past, as well as my opinions and views on this week's hottest stories in rock and metal, it's time for my favourite part of the show, the disclaimer. The opinions and thoughts of the Old Metal Bar Steward are mine and mine alone, and in no way reflect the opinions and thoughts of 25 years later media and the Ruminations Radio Network. So, with all that legal bollocks out of the way, I'd like to start off today by telling you of the massive impact a little band called ACDC had on my life, all thanks to their main man leader, the one and only Bon Scott. As I may have mentioned once or twice, I had a leg up when it came to rock music as a child, my asshole stepdad had quite an extensive collection that covered everything from Sabbath to Zeppelin, and my mum had me covered when it came to the likes of Stones and glam rock era Bowie, so I had a pretty decent schooling in all things riff orientated. Yet it wasn't until I turned 10 that I found a band called my own. My cousin had been a big influence on my life to that point, though he would sadly change into an asshole as well. And when I used to go and visit him on weekends, we'd spend nearly all of our time sat in his room as he played me ACDC records. I was already fascinated by this group of ragtag vagabonds. So when he suddenly and inexplicably showed up on my doorstep one afternoon with all the albums under his arms as a gift to me, I couldn't wait to get every single one onto my little turntable and crank it up to 11. Well, as close to 11 as I could get from a stereo that would cost about the same amount as a packet of crisps. To this day, some 38 years later, I have no idea why he did this, but I'm glad he did, as it meant that my preteen self had something else to focus on other than the likes of Leo Sayer, Abba and Barbara Bloody Streisand. It was the 80s. Music was awful. Now, before I go any further, I should point out that I love Brian Johnson. At least I do these days. There is a myriad of reasons behind this, such as I'm a lot older than I was when he took over as singer, as well as the fact that he seems like the kind of bloke I could quite happily spend a few hours drinking beer with. But for a very large chunk of my life, I hated anything that ACDC did that involved him. This was because I was exposed to the group when Bon Scott was still the main guy. Sure, he'd been dead two years before I got my grubby little hands on his back catalogue, but outside of the aforementioned for those about to rock and back in black, the other six albums in my newly found collection were all Bond Scott fronted. Another major factor that played into this was the covers of the LPs themselves. Not really knowing much about life, the universe, or anything outside of being able to tie my own shoes, my choice of which Black Circle got the first spin was judged on whatever picture caught my eye. And as soon as I saw the sleeve for If You Want Blood, You've Got It, well, I was never going to start anywhere else. If You Want Blood is the greatest live album ever recorded, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. I will also eat your cat if you tell me that Riff Raff isn't the greatest opening track to ever grace final tape, laser disc, CD or digital. That roar of the crowd, that scream of Angus Young's guitar, the way the whole intro builds up to that riff, and the thumping rhythm section, it truly is a thing of beauty but it would have been all pointless if the guy stepping up to the mic had been the rock equivalent of Robbie fucking Williams, or limp letters and no balls vocal styling. Thank the gods then for Bon Scott. 
The moment he opens his mouth and his whiskey-soaked, cigarette-ravaged voice pours forth, see it on the television every day, you hear it on the radio, it ain't humid, but it sure is hot down in Mexico, then you know you are in the presence of greatness. Don't believe me? Then when you're done listening to this, get your ass over to YouTube and check out the live version. It's almost a religious experience. There has never been a more perfect way to start any album, live or otherwise, and it sets the tone for the rest of the record. It is a roaring beast of a live recording. It's balls-out rock and roll of the highest order, with only the jack slowing proceedings down, probably to give the band five minutes to catch their breath. Every single member is on their game, and it showcases just how fantastic a band of brothers can be when they are a tight, well-oiled and highly drilled machine. And at the front of the sonic landscape, playing ringmaster to the show, is the one and only Bon Scott. Born in Scotland in 1946, Bon and his family moved to Australia in 1952 when he was six years old. By all accounts, he was what you would call a tearaway. And at the age of 15, he dropped out of school and started to work any job he could find. This didn't last very long, and he soon found himself in trouble with the law, and at the age of 17, he was carted off to the Riverbank Juvenile Institution for a litany of charges including unlawful carnal knowledge as well as assault. According to a biography written by some of his close friends, this all came about after he slept with a girl at a local dance and then two other guys tried to force themselves upon her afterwards. Seeing this, Bond jumped on the would-be rapist and when the police broke it up, he gave them a false name and address before doing a runner. He got nine months inside for his troubles and it scarred him because, as he explained it, it broke his mother's heart. When he got out, he tried to join the Australian army but was rejected on the grounds that he was socially maladjusted. So with another raft of meaningless jobs in his rearview mirror, he decided to give music a try and formed his own band, The Spectres, in 1964. The Spectres would eventually join forces with the Winstons and form the Valentines, because having the word the in the name of your band was all the rage back then, I'm guessing. And it was with the Valentines that he tasted his first success. It's a strange sensation to see Bon Scott and any other guys in the wild-eyed frontman of ACDC, but once again YouTube is your friend, and has proof that this happened. And he had a fantastic haircut to go with it. It's a cross between a mullet and a bowl job that your parents would have given you if they couldn't be asked to take you to the hairdressers. It is amazing. What wasn't amazing, however, was the scandal that hit the group in 1969. It seems that during the mid to late 60s, drugs were everywhere. And though that may have been true in places like America and the United Kingdom, the land down under hadn't really been exposed to this kind of problem. So when the Valentines were busted for possession of pot, it made national headlines. The biggest Australian music magazine at the time, Go Set, wrote, The pop world rocked last week when the police raided the practice hideaway of top pop group The Valentines and found them in possession of the drug marijuana. The members of the group were all fined $150 apiece and put on probation, but it was the beginning of the end for the band. Bond started telling anyone who would listen that marijuana should be legalised and the police should mind their own fucking business. And this just added to already heightened tensions within the group, which resulted in the Valentines deciding to go their separate ways. Not being one to rest on his laurels, Bond joined the band Fraternity Slash Fang and spent three years on the road travelling the globe, but it would prove to be another false start when they returned from the UK and promptly split up. 
down on his luck once again. Bonnet ended up taking a job, literally shoveling shit, at the Wallaroo fertilizer plant. During this period, he hooked up with Mount Lofty Rangers, but Bon being Bon, it was only a matter of time before he burnt his bridges there as well. Unfortunately, this time it almost killed him. At a rehearsal, Bon got into it with a fellow band member and, allegedly drunk as a poet on payday, stormed out and jumped on his motorcycle. Lee Morgan was heading down to Port Adelaide that night when all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, Bon's bike ploughed into his car at breakneck speed. It sent him straight through the windscreen and the impact was so ferocious and so violent that Morgan's car was a write-off. But even worse was the damage to the rider. Bon lost a fair few teeth, which explains his trademark smile, broke his collarbone, slashed his neck open, smashed multiple bones and was in a coma for three days. After he got out of hospital, he started doing odd jobs for his friend Vince Lovegrove, who was running a talent agency at the time. And it was through this contact that he ended up fronting a little band called ACDC, though this almost didn't happen. When Lovegrove was approached by George Young, Angus and Malcolm's brother, to help them find a replacement for their original singer Dave Evans, he suggested Bond. George wasn't sold. Concerned that Scott was far too old for the band, but after Lovegrove had met with the young brothers, he managed to convince them to at least meet him. Backstage, after a show at the Puraka Hotel, I think, Bon, who was very interested in joining the band, said that he didn't think that they had what it took to rock, to which the boys told him that he was too old to rock anyway. What could have turned into a massive scrap instead turned into an all-night jam session. And when the sound came up the next morning, it was obvious to everyone involved that Bon Scott was the missing piece of the puzzle. It's impossible to understate the importance of Bon Scott to the history of ACDC. Angus himself has said, I don't think there'd have been an ACDC if I hadn't been for Bon. He moulded the character of ACDC. And it's true. What Bon brought to the table was a no-bullshit attitude to help the band leave behind their glam rock roots and forward ahead was one of the hardest rocking and hardest working bands of the decade. He was so desperate to become a success. In a way, to make up to his parents for the time he spent in prison, that it rubbed off on the other members of the band and this intensity paid off tenfold. They became more than a group. They became a gang. And they partied hard, played even harder, and wouldn't take shit from anyone. The tales of ACDC being willing to take on all comers is legendary, such as the time they got into an epic fight with Deep Purple's management and road crew. But it wasn't all about kicking ass. They had a wicked sense of humour too. This would become apparent when they appeared on the Australian TV show Countdown to perform... Baby, please don't go. The sight of Bon Scott dressed as a schoolgirl, including a wig with pigtails, is still as funny now as it was in 1975. And seriously, if you get the chance, go and check it out on, yes, you guessed it, YouTube. It also helped that during the next six years, they would release classic album after classic album, driven by the music of Angus and Malcolm, and filled with the lyrical wit and simple brutality of Bon Scott. They released a single song during this period that could be considered filler. And it was heading towards a crashing crescendo that would become 1979's Highway to Hell. Yet, it was this phenomenal output of a record a year that began to take its toll. ACDC was trapped in the cycle of releasing a new album, hitting the road to support that new album, finishing the tour, heading straight back into the studio, 
releasing a new album, hitting the road to support that new album, Rinse and Repeat. And it was during the sessions for what would become Back in Black that all finally caught up with their charismatic lead singer. No one really knows what happened, as Bond was the only person present at the time of his death, and he took that information with him. But on February the 19th, 1980, at 67 Overhill Road, East Dulwich, London, Bond Scott was found dead. He was only 33. There has been much speculation over the years as to what caused this tragedy, with books by the dozen citing everything from him choking on his own vomit to a heroin overdose being the cause. But what these writers seem to miss is that the method of his passing is far less significant than the simple fact that the world lost one of the greatest ever characters and vocalists, and the band and his family lost someone they loved dearly. As for me, Bon Scott will always be the voice of ACDC, and even though I never knew him, he'll always loom large in my life. Almost like a surrogate brother to a young boy who was looking for some way out of a miserable family life. He set the bar as far as I was concerned, as to what a true rock and roll singer should be, and how a man should carry himself. And even though I would pick up more heroes to learn from along the way, Bon Scott was the one who laid the original blueprint for who I would eventually become. And for that, I'll be eternally grateful. Now it's time for the weekly news roundup. Oy, this story's hard. But if you don't know the name Stephen William Johnson, then you're about to. Johnson is the drummer, was the drummer for Alabama Shakes, depending on if they're still on hiatus or whether or not they fired his ass. He pleaded guilty last year to violating a domestic violence protection order filed by his ex-wife in Limestone County. She took out the restraining order after he used threatening behaviour against her, as well as harassed her, stalked her and choked her back in 2018. Because nothing says I love you as much as treating somebody like a piece of shit. Well, it seems that Mr Johnson wasn't happy just trying to ruin his ex-wife's life as he was arrested on March 24th for child abuse. He has been indicted on charges of willful torture, abuse and cruelly beating or otherwise willfully maltreating a child under the age of 18. He's currently awaiting arraignment for his hearing on April 7th until his trial is over and he has been found either innocent or guilty. I can't tell you what I think about these charges, but as he's been already found guilty of domestic abuse, I can say this. Anyone, man or woman, who abuses another human being in any way, shape or form should be dropped into a very deep fucking hole and left there to rot. There is no excuse for it. And even though I'm not a religious man, I hope that if there is a hell, they have a special section dedicated to putting these fuckers through every single moment of agony they've put their victims through. In lighter news, Iron Maiden's Adrian Smith has been speaking to Eddie Trunk lately. And he says that the band has some very, very exciting things in the pipeline and that we're all going to be delighted when they finally let us know what they've got in store. Obviously, he couldn't elaborate any further, mainly because Steve Harris would have had to have had him killed if he did. But it set the interwebs ablaze with rumours and opinions of what the boys have lined up. Personally, I think it's going to be the announcement of a brand new album, their first since Book of Souls in 2015, followed by what could possibly be a monumental tour when we're all finally allowed to get back on with our lives. What I'm really jonesing for is a full-on version of the Maiden mobile game, Legacy of the Beast for consoles. I mean, 
Who doesn't want to plug in their PS5 and beat the snot out of bad guys as Eddie? Anyone? No? Okay, just me then. In a move that nobody asked for and either fewer people wanted, fucking stained the back. They're releasing a new album called Live, It's Been A While, as that's the only fucking song that anyone knows and they've been living off it for the last 20 years, so why not keep flogging that dead horse with all your might? Jesus Christ, I hate this fucking band. With a passion. I hate the entire new metal bullshit to start with. So these wankers could have shown up, thrown fistfuls of money at my face while offering me a night with Scarlet Johansson, I would still told them to fuck off. And before you line up to tell me that stains weren't new metal, but they were post-new metal, let's not forget that if it wasn't for everyone's favourite walking cheeseburger, Fred Durst, then no motherfucker would have a goddamn clue who these one-trick ponies are. So yeah, as you can guess, this album is high on my list of shite to avoid this year. Right next to the Papa fucking Roach reunion. David Ellefson. Ellefson? Elfson. Never never knew, Dave. Never knew. Stupid last night. Anyway, David Ellefson has been talking bollocks to Chris Akin of the Classic Metal Show by claiming that Dave Mustaine, sorry, Mustaine because Mummy isn't allowed to let him out, Mustaine invented thrash and that Megadeth is the greatest thrash band ever. Talking about his new project, Sons of Apollo, he said, I look at it like this. When people come to me, they go, oh dude, it's thrash and it's heavy. It's like, I'm already in the greatest thrash band in the history of the world, so I don't need to do thrash anywhere else. I do that in Megadeth. I played with the guy who invented the genre. Now, I don't know if Davey Boy had his tongue firmly planted in his cheek when he said this or not, or if he was just doing what everyone who's ever been in a band does, and that's to believe you're the greatest band in the fucking universe, but to claim Mustaine invented thrash and Megadeth are the greatest thrash band of all time? Yeah, not so much. Come on, Dave Megadeth wasn't even the best band of the Big Four. In fact, they come in last place there with Anthrax, Slayer and Metallica easily putting out far better records during that glory period than they did. And let's be honest, Dave Mustaine didn't invent dick except how to piss off the Irish by claiming he understands the cores back in the day. Now, I get that you have to stand by your man and all that bollocks, but what this is is just dumb for dumb's sake. And it makes me remember why I stopped listening to the band after so far so good to fuck off. Tony Iommi has chipped in on the Rock is Dead debate that's been raging on and on for the past few years. Talking to Consequence of Sound, the living legend said, I think good music is not going to gut. There's always going to be a market for it. There are going to be an amount of bands that fall by the wayside, as there always is, there always will be. But there are certain bands that are going to stick it out, and they're going to be there. You've got Metallica up there. They're not going to go away. They've got a lot of fans. They've got a great fan base. There's a lot of bands out there. No, the music is not going to go away. As far as I'm concerned, and as far as anybody else should be concerned, that's the end of the fucking argument. If Tony Iommi says that the scene is far from on life support, then the scene is far from on fucking life support. After all, when the best counter comes from the singer from Maroon 5 who claimed back in 2018 that... Rock music is nowhere, really. I don't know where it is. Then perhaps stop pouring dirt on its grave. Also, uh, Adam, is it? The reason that nobody invited you to the party, as you were quite happy to point out in that interview, is that you're a cunt and your band is fucking shite. And finally, more news from The Neck this week. And Corey Taylor has written a movie called Zombies vs. Ninjas and claims that he doesn't want to make Oscar winners, he just wants to make fun, crazy cult classics. 
Now, outside of my love of all things rock and metal, crappy movies are a huge passion of mine. In fact, Kung Fu flicks and creature features have been a part of my daily diet for decades, and the crapper they are, the better. So the idea that one of my favourite musicians is going to turn his hand to two of my favourite genres fills me with so much glee and happiness that I had to have a lie down when I first saw this story. Zombies vs Ninjas will do exactly what it says on the tin, and I can't wait to sit down with a few beers, make sure the kids are asleep, and feast my eyeballs on what should be an instant cult classic. And if a certain Mr. Taylor or any of his publicists hear this episode and would like to add me to an advanced screening list when it does finally arrive, then I sure as shit wouldn't turn it down. So there it is. Another week, another episode of The Old Metal Bar Steward. I've been your host, The Old Metal Bar Steward himself, Neil Gray. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening to the show. Brought to you by 25 Years Later Media and the Ruminations Radio Network. And you all know the drill by now. When you turn off my dulcet tones, head on over to the main 25 Years Later site, as well as its sister sites, Horror Obsessive and Sports Obsessive, and get your eyeballs some top-notch reading. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network, as they've got you covered no matter what your ear holes are craving. I'll be back here in seven days' time with more news, reviews, opinions, and tales from my sordid past. So until then, stay safe and stay metal, you filthy animals.